Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go, and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 1, Episode 2, Wendigo. Let's get this show on the road. Now, Drew, this week, I'd like to challenge you to do a three-minute recap so that we don't have a seven-minute recap for every episode. Yeah, that would, that would, would be nice, wouldn't it? Would you be up to it? that task and that challenge? Okay. Okay, great. Uh, so, I am going to count you down. So, three, two, one, go. We open on three kids camping in the woods. This scene has every cliche under the sun from, like, uh, just everything that can go wrong in a scene that's on a camping trip goes wrong. Uh, they are attacked by something, this thing we do not see till nearly the end of the episode, which again, I love for horror movie reasons. Um, we then cut to the brothers, they are following coordinates their dad left them, they get to this middle of nowhere place, find out there was a <clears throat> bear attack, uh, they do some research, find out the attacks have been happening every 23 years like clockwork, they uh, help a woman who again is just plot meat at this point unfortunately, get to... Uh, where the coordinates are. They find the brother's campsite, figure out it's a Wendigo, woo. Um, Dean actually describes the Wendigo pretty accurately, which is surprising, which we'll get into. Uh, they get hunt it, it hunts them, it cap- It kills the hunter they brought with them, who kind of deserved it, who's an asshole, but you know, death is always a bad thing. Uh, Dean and the girl whose name I already forgot, I think Haley, get captured. They go find them, because he left a trail of M&Ms, which is brilliant. They kill the monster with fire. I do you did amazing there is currently you basically only used a minute and 46 seconds damn I'm happy but again like you said you did wonderful yeah but like you said these episodes are though there's a lot to talk about the Mm -hmm. recaps are a lot quicker because I feel like we're gonna get to a lot of introduce people being hurt by monster brothers show up because of plot reasons monster gets defeated everything's happily ever after it and then maybe along the way we learn a little bit more get some clues so the recaps will be a little lighter but i'm okay with that it'll give me time to practice when we get to the bigger ones i have a little more uh, expertise in the matter oh for sure especially those really important ones where we introduce big new characters that follow them through a few seasons that'll be wonderful i'm very excited for that (laughs) I I truly am. I will say in this episode, I really saw some development in the brothers, which we'll get to. Mm. I'm excited for us to get more characters to learn about and develop. Mm -hmm. But this episode, and again, going into it kind of with that analytical eye that we're really trying to bring to this, there is some very interesting development of the brothers. Absolutely. Speaking of which, would you like to move on directly into our section about the long game and the brothers? Yeah, sure, unless you had anything specific you wanted to uh, bring up that I missed in my recap. Honestly, the recap was really wonderful. The only thing I might just point out, and again, that's something that we're going to talk about in The Brothers, is that it's the reason why they figure out that it's a Wendigo is really thanks to Sam looking into their dad's journal. And both of those things, you know, Sam being uh, in some way the bringer of knowledge is a, a dynamic that is recurring and will come back through the 15 seasons. 
and the looking to their their dad's journal when they have no place left to look is something that comes back. So I would just say like, it's interesting that that's something that starts happening so early on in the series. True. I feel like, I feel like in this episode, it almost, I don't want to say acts like a crutch per se, but it kind of acts like a silent, um, what is the term I'm looking for? Like a guiding character. Like a lot of stories will have a character who acts as a guide. Mm -hmm. In this case, the guide is their father through the journal. The journal kind of acts as like a deus ex machina of information. It's always got the thing they need in it, which is a little bit like convenient, but plot wise makes sense, I guess. But yeah, you're right. It is. It's a, um, it does kind of tie into, you're right. Sam really being the like, Dean is the let's go shoot this thing. And Sam's like the let's figure out what to shoot it with thing. (laughs) Because. Yes, exactly. I do love that this episode does clearly say, well, guns are useless. How do we kill it with this gun? Like, I understand it's the fire, but still, it's literally the guns are useless. Let's kill it with guns. This gun is useless. Let's kill it with a fire gun. (laughs) Yup. Yes, it's very, there's definitely some displays of, uh, well, I mean, I don't know how else to call it, but just toxic masculinity in there that I really do intend on talking about. Oh, yeah. We have a lot of that to bring up in this episode. Yes. Oof. (laughs) So uh, speaking, let's let's dive into some of the dynamics that we're seeing right now in the relationship. So we've talked already mm-hmm. a little bit about Sam being the bringer of knowledge and, you know, the looking to dad's journal when there's nowhere left to look. But something else that shows up and that I really wanted to point out is Sassy Sam. Yes, I see this in our notes and I am <laughs> part of what I brought. I, I noticed this episode was a little bit of a kind of a role reversal like if you had to pick a sassy one in the first episode like the show was going to build one as the sassy one Mm -hmm. you would have assumed it was dean Mm -hmm. but this episode gave it to sam and then we also see Mm -hmm. dean being the more level-headed and like emotionally strong character for some scenes so we get a nice back and forth but i want to hear more about sassy sam well sassy sam (laughs) yes sassy (laughs) sam shows up uh i call him that because it's it's like a in the fandom like it's the thing you know people refer to sassy sam when he's being like this and so there's this one part where dean is really pushing to go and help uh Haley find her brother and sam goes Ugh, it's not enough that we have to find dad now we have to babysit on top of it <laughs> and that tone that he takes is just so representative of the moments where he sasses people, not only in this first season, but, you know, throughout the, the seasons. It does, like, show up less and less. But when it does, it's just always so glorious, frankly. I, I, it always brings a smile to my face, that's for sure. I think that's part of the, the love of these characters is that though they get billed, I feel like a lot of shows have a tendency to, like, really, like, put a character in a hole and just let them happily live in that hole and, like, rarely break from it. So... Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have shows where a character gets to break from their mold and it's really like, what a fun episode. But this, almost within literally two episodes, has shown us that though they do have their major traits, that Dean is always going to be like the gunslinging, woohoo, let's do this thing. And Sam is going to be a little more of the like intelligent, reserved, thinking things through kind Mm -hmm. of character. Mm -hmm. Already in this episode, we're seeing that they can break from these molds and that they don't need to be one thing. They can be a multitude. I love that. Uh, it's such a brilliant uh, observation, frankly, because that's that's also what I wanted to talk about, that 
one of the dynamics that we're starting to see is that shift that can happen between the brothers. So when one of them needs to be the sassy one or needs to just be angry, like Sam needs to be angry right now because of what happened to Jess, well, then Dean steps in and is able to provide that level of level-headedness that Sam would usually bring to the relationship. And that you will see throughout the seasons that there's a good balance of that and that it's um it rocks back and forth. So sometimes Dean is extremely angry and Sam really needs to bring him back to earth, but it happens the other way too. And in different ways because they are written very distinctly. But still, like that role reversal does happen and I just find that it's such a a richness for for this show. Yeah, like I'm a little surprised. Like I feel like I've watched enough shows and I'm a big fan of large arcing narratives and i feel like it usually takes some time to show us a character get us used to them get us comfortable with them let us really learn their ins and outs and then slowly reveal the other side of the coin slowly mm. reveal you know deep down inside they're really a nice guy or like there's that like the cl- it's a classic narrative thing but here we have yeah. i i want to jump right away to that scene where they're sitting by the campfire and you know Sa- sam's all like gung-ho and dean's like hey I know you're not fine. Let's talk. Yes, absolutely. On Yes. Yeah, you don't see Dean as the like, hey, let's have a brotherly family conversation. Like every conversation we've had so far about dad or about mom or about family has been very action charged. And this is the first time he's like, hey, I know you're not okay. Mm-hmm. Let's talk. Let's, you know, let tell me what's going on. And I love that. That's true. And to speak to that, he even says, I think in the last episode, he, Dean says, whenever the conversation gets a little deeper, he either gets really angry at Sam for saying that their mom is not coming back because she's dead, or he goes, well, no chick flick moments whenever it becomes a bit more emotional. So he's the one like trying to distance himself. Whereas in here, he's really the one who's trying to reach out to, to Sam and to engage with him. Yeah, it's a very nice dynamic. And it's honestly impressive how a show can do that so quickly Mm. like yes we've been given a total of an hour and a half with these brothers and the world they live in and already i feel like they are so fleshed out so quickly and i feel like there might be some bias in that because of the fact that i know sort of about the show like i know how long it's run i know little details here and there like very minimal things but mm-hmm. I know of these characters, like, their legend goes beyond just watching the show. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's just so impressive how much I know about them already and how much I can connect mm-hmm. with them already and see both sides of them already. It's truly indicative of they are real people. They don't feel like characters. They are real people. So, Drew, I have one question for you. Please ask away. Because we talked, you talked briefly about Roy in your recap, and I feel that Roy plays a really important hidden role in this uh, episode. Mm-hmm. When Dean asks him, you know, what he's hunting and whatnot, what do you make of that? Because I felt when he was asking him about his hunting experience that he might have been checking if he was a hunter or a hunter and i'd like to know what you think about that that is interesting i didn't read it that way and i'm curious to know again if that is if i had to like make an assumption based on the statement 
do we meet other hunters down the road and maybe this is something you're putting on the episode because you know something I don't? Again, no need to answer that out loud. I'm assuming <laughs> we'll meet other hunters. I, 15 seasons, you have to at some point. <laughs> yes, there will be other hunters. <laughs> yeah, there's no way they're the only two on Earth, let alone there are three if you have their father. <laughs> no, it didn't hit me at the time. Now that you've brought it up, I want to explore it more. To me, it almost seemed like, and pardon the expression, a pissing contest. It really felt like Dean likes... There's a level of Dean, like, as much as we talk about his development of this episode, there is a major part of Dean that kind of, like, he needs to be the badass in the group. So as soon as there's someone else who doesn't get him, or someone who sees him as dead weight, he needs, you know, alpha male it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And this was almost his way of, like, you know, it could be seen like he was just checking to see what this guy's knowledge was. But to me, it felt a lot more of, what do you hunt? Oh, pfft, Bambi, Yogi Bear, ooh, spooky. <laughs> Even the way that he downplays hunting bears and deers, which I I mean, I, I can assume hunting bears is dangerous. Hunting bucks, I, I, I mean, I guess it could be dangerous. I don't know. I've never hunted. I don't plan on. But I truly wonder, like, now that you say it, like, was that him kind of, was it just a pissing contest or was it a let's learn more, which does actually make sense. I mean, I guess you want to know this kind of stuff when you're going into the woods with somebody. So I, I think that both explanations or both perspectives can really coexist because the way that I read it, especially this time watching it again, I really read it as, you know, he's checking to see if he's just a hunter. And then when he, once he realized that, he, that Roy is just a hunter, not a hunter-hunter, um, mm -hmm. that's when, to me, the pissing contest starts. And he goes, oh, well, did Bambi or Yogi Bear ever try to hunt you back? <laughs> and that's, I think that's when that dynamic really um, takes root and just blossoms, you know, very quickly. So Yeah, like, we see, like, I think in that scene, like, as soon as he realizes, like, oh, this guy is nothing, he's just hunted regular animals, he suddenly gets that air of, like, really cocky Dean that, like, kind of find charming but also really like ugh, i could see it getting tiring quickly so hopefully it's not a you recurring. and me both but i feel like yeah and it does kind of lead into some of the like very we get a really bad taste at least i did a very bad taste in my mouth this episode from dean in his interaction with female character singular mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because again we get a single woman in the entire episode and she is basically Mm -hmm. there to move the plot forward like she could literally be a phone call and it would have the same effect mm -hmm. and it just sort of gives dean this opportunity to i could kind of see it from a writing perspective of a i don't want to say love interest but just sort of a like here is someone who can idolize dean in a way that sam can so we can make dean more redeemable but it just makes dean look like an ass in front of her most of the time and that even at the mm -hmm. end, when there's that little kiss on the cheek, which at least is, I read it more as a thank you, but also they can't leave him not getting a reward for saving the day. Like, there has to be a, oh, I'm mm -hmm. a woman and you save me. I have to, you know, thank you in a, some romantic gesture. At least mm -hmm. they went for the smallest level of that and it didn't turn into an actual kiss. But still, again, it kind of leads to what we said in our previous episode, that lens of like women are really just objects in the shop to this point unfortunately yes i yes again uh you know when i rewatch these episodes i'm always shocked at how just how traditional in a bad way the interactions between men and women really are one thing that i will say about 
this, again, if we're looking at the brothers as really um, not as people, as, as characters written by flawed people, but as people on their own, mm -hmm. who exactly has Dean had as a role model in terms of, of, of woman in his life? That is a very valid point. Right? So he doesn't... So the, the boys, we learn a little later, have moved from school to school their entire lives. They've never stayed for a full school year in the same school. Uh, they always lived alone with their dad, most of the time alone in motel rooms. They never had a stable upbringing or anything like that. So I'm also not sure that John has ever had like a long-term relationship. Or actually, no, we know that John hasn't had a long-term relationship after Mary. So... I'm not saying this to excuse Dean because I, I that's really not my goal here but I am saying saying it to explain a little bit and to understand him better that I don't think he's ever had a good example of how to interact with women and that to him the only thing that's raised him is TV and how does TV treat men and women there you oh, go Oh yeah we're... and that is how Dean acts So Yeah it's a it's a very good point. I mean, you think about their father, and I being we've we've already alluded to him maybe drinking a bit more since everything happened. Mm -hmm. If I remember him well from the later series, I know we do meet him eventually between now and season three or four. Yes, there is a tendency to sort of he comes off as a little bit of like a drunken character in some moments. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have this guy who ostensibly had the love of his life taken from him. Never, mm -hmm. as you said, never really had a relationship with a woman again after that. So, how does he treat women? I mean, there's a level of respect, but also you're not worthy because you're not my wife type thing, mm -hmm. maybe. And that's Possibly. all Dean's really had to grow up on. Mm -hmm. It makes sense that he only sort of sees women as, I, I don't want to say objects again, but mm -hmm. they are there to be women. Mm -hmm. And I think he even, like, if you were to make any other character in this episode, like, had the hunter, had Roy been a female character, I think it would have been the same level of animosity towards Roy. But mm -hmm. would have been a lot more of a, less of a pissing contest and more of the let me win your heart over like you did with Haley. I think it would have definitely been much more predatorial in that sense. Yes, mm -hmm. I agree. Would you like to move on to critical time? Yes, because I do have some stuff I want to bring up here. And I will admit I came ready to be, I, I did some research first <gasps> because it's a topic that is important to me. Good. And that is Wendigos or the Wendigo is a very interesting mythological creature has a lot of interesting history to it and in so much north american modern western media is totally butchered it is basically seen as it's a monster it's like a snow creature it's gone as far as looking like yetis or like antlered spirit thing and i sort of came ready to go like oh they're clearly not going to do the the wendigo justice because no one's done it and then I was kind of shocked to see that they did a pretty okay job compared to most media. Really? So some of the things about the Wendigo that are worth bringing up, and a lot of this is more common knowledge, and if you just go on Wikipedia and look at some of the sources, you'll find a lot of this. Uh, it is an Algonquin creature, so a lot of Algonquin, Native American, and First Nations do have stories of a creature like this. Mm -hmm. um, they're actually surprisingly well-versed uh, in, in Canada. They're much more Eastern Canada, so... Nova Scotia and stuff like that where these legends do come from but it's generally seen yes as a malevolent creature 
But the majority of Wendigo stories are designed to be humans who are affected by greed. And this does often go into cannibalism as well, or just hoarding or being greedy. A lot of it going back to the winter months where people are kind of like hoarding their stock of uh, crops so they can survive the winter. There's a level of keeping enough for yourself and then keeping too much for yourself and not letting the rest of your village and the rest of your people have. And that greed manifests as an evil spirit within you, transforming you into this evil creature. And most of these stories that are passed down by uh, First Nations and Indians and Native people is not so much about the Wendigo as a creature, but as a malevolent force leading others to learn from its mistakes. And I will admit, at least from the description they gave of it, the depiction of it in the show do tend to line up more accurately with the legends than most shows have in the fact that it is very human-like. It is disfigured and transformed because of this evil. They do lose a few points on, they describe it more as just like a natural transformation of like, oh, anyone who becomes a cannibal can become a Wendigo. It's, this is more seen as like a punishing spirit of winter effect, infecting somebody who's being greedy and punishing them more than a like oh he became cannibalistic and because of that he transformed which you know what for interpretation's sake i can kind of get away with without having to step on the feet of like another culture and really like go too far into it but for someone who came into this really thinking they were gonna butcher this i'm a little on the impressed side as much as there were mistakes Mm -hmm. at least they weren't as egregious as most modern media has been about it so I'll give them points there. Okay. Um, the only thing that really came across as like 100% fictional is the killing it with fire thing. Uh, the Wendigo is a spirit. It can't be killed. It can only be escaped. At least it in the proper legends. It can only be escaped. Okay, yeah, so in the, the idea legends... Is the, yeah, the idea is the Wendigo, like you may have heard other stories, like uh, a lot of cultures have stories of like a witch in the swamp or like a creature that like lives in the woods. It's never to be defeated. It's only ever to be escaped. The Wendigo is a lot like that. The story of the Wendigo is not, this is an evil thing, let's kill it. The story of the Wendigo is, this is a evil spirit that has taken possession of a greedy person. We will then learn from this and not be greedy ourselves and escape with our lives. You know, this is so interesting to me because I understand. So you said that it was that the Wendigo is basically from uh, Algonquin uh, tradition is that right yes okay so from what i know of the algonquin or anishinaabe uh tribes i mm-hmm. understand that there's this idea of living in balance with nature and that every being on earth is equal and when when they talk about being they also talk about the grass the earth the rocks, the sun. So those are considered to be relatives to yours, right? So there is no such thing as evil or bad. You know, the wolf doesn't hunt you or the bear doesn't hunt you because he's bad. He hunts you because he needs to eat. And the human doesn't hunt animals because he's bad. He hunts them because he needs to eat. And so that idea of killing for fun is just not present in those traditions Killing only happens for survival. Which, again, is something we do see in this episode that, again, kind of surprised me. This wasn't just a, oh, it's an evil creature and it's killing indiscriminately. Mm -hmm. 
they made it very clear this creature is killing to feed to itself. Eat. It's hunting to eat. Exactly. So that idea, like I see it almost like as a clash, right? To see Dean mm-hmm. and Sam uh, from their, you know, we're looking at them now as characters written by flawed people. And so that idea that like you can kill evil, there is evil and you can kill it. Which is in mm-hmm. contrast with the idea of, well, you know, now you've got the spirit living in the forest and it's home, so you got to just deal with it, you know? <laughs> so there's that, that clash between uh, indigenous and settler culture that seems to happen in how they decided to treat the resolution of the episode, which I find mm-hmm. interesting uh, now learning more about the myth. Yeah, so I really do feel for what they needed to do with the episode, I'm going to cheat a bit here because I couldn't decide what my crossroads is going to be, so I'm going to kind of use it here a little bit, <laughs> is I would have liked to have seen, as much as I love representation of these creatures, especially when they're done somewhat more justice than, they, than most other media does, I think I would have liked to have seen another creature, whether it be completely fictionalized or something else, mm-hmm. just so they could have the story they had. Mm-hmm. Because the true story I would have loved would have been getting away from it and understanding that this is a creature of the woods we can't interfere with it it's going to do what it's going to do but at least we can save these people but i feel like that wouldn't have done justice what we needed for this episode well then let me throw you this question Ooh, do throw yeah so then you know you're hinting at the idea that you would have preferred that the the monster of the week had been treated with more respect but how can somebody treat a specific myth with respect if they're not part of their culture and so my question to you is do you feel that assuming that the 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 writer's room potentially didn't have an indigenous person in there or at least of Anishinaabe uh, in the Anishinaabe tradition do you feel like it was justified for them to choose an indigenous myth to tell when they didn't have anybody to really tell the story. So I think you're hitting the nail on the head here. And I think with any level of mythology, it it needs to be handled with respect. And I think that's exactly my point is if you don't have someone either on staff or hire someone as a consultant who is an expert in this matter, mm-hmm. I feel like it's a little disrespectful. Like okay. I think, even had they done it perfectly, which would have shocked me, I think the only way they could have done that perfectly would have been with some sort of outside help. And unfortunately, this does feel to me like the whitewashing of this creature. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I will say at least they did it better than most. But that's like saying someone was only a little racist and not, you know, like murdering people. Like, it's still racism. Like, yeah, you know, you still like... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, you're not as bad as so-and-so, but that doesn't mean you're an angel, like, you know? No, for sure. So, I think part of it kind of goes with either the pick things that are within your own wheelhouse, or if you're going to bring in something amazingly interesting like the Wendigo, at least do the proper research. And I will admit, uh, a lot of other shows I do follow, uh, Spirits Podcast is one that we both listen to. Yes. Even they have said on their show how hard it's been to research the Wendigo because there isn't a lot of information out there. Mm-hmm. And they have actively gone out and asked people of Algonquin background or mm-hmm. other cultures that do have the Wendigo within their mythologies to reach out to them. And they've even said it's been really hard to find anyone like them. Maybe this was too big of a project to take on for episode two for them. <laughs> I will 
I will give them I will yeah. give them a gold I'll give them a gold star for effort. But my note on their homework from a teacher's perspective would be like, please do better research next time. At least you tried. <laughs> a for effort. Yes. You don't need to put this in the podcast, but this is really just for you to hear. But one of the reasons why it's hard to find information is because a lot of the people who held that knowledge or who who were passers of that knowledge and that tradition have been killed, right? By yeah, settlers. That's, by... that's exactly the thing, so yeah. let's be very clear about the reason why it's difficult to find information. It's not because it's well-guarded. It's because... We killed it. We killed the knowledge as part of a, a, a an attempt at genocide. Yeah, unfortunately, one of the one of the the spoils of war is uh, choosing what mythology stays and what mythology doesn't. And when one group comes in and wipes out another, you kind of lose their story and their history. Absolutely. Oh, well, now that we've depressed everybody, um... yes. Um, <laughs> do we have anything else critical you wanted to bring up? I know we focus a lot on the monster of the week, but of course, there is the entire show as a whole we want to look at. In critical, time, well, frankly, I mean, we've we've already talked a little bit about how female characters are handled in this particular episode. I really don't love it. You're right; it's very, you know, she could have been a phone call, but she's there to be sexualized and to be Dean's love interest, and it's just mm-hmm. sad. But, you know, she is also, uh, again, I don't know why I'm trying to find so many uh, silver linings to to this particular character, but she, you know, she's not your typical damsel in distress either. You know, she is ready to go out into the woods to help her brother. She is well prepared. She knows where she's going. She hired help to be able to bring that mission to fruition. I mean, I'm pretty proud of her, frankly, and I'm pretty proud of the the writers to be able to have brought that into that very simple like fairly unimportant character i don't know how you feel about that no and i I definitely feel like i i'm the type to also love a silver lining like as much as i might be able to say like this was overall handled poorly like the wendigo has its flaws Mm -hmm. the silver lining is at least it was better than most and at least tried to follow tradition Mm -hmm. like even dean and sam discussing oh it makes no sense to be so far out west it's like at least you brought that up (laughs) <laughs> at least you reference the fact that it's in a weird area and doesn't really make sense for it. Mm-hmm. You know what? Like, I, I understand that. And you're right. Uh, this Haley character really could have been just a damsel in distress. She really could have been just a female character for the sake of a female character. But they did show that she was smart enough to hire, you know, a professional. She was smart enough to listen to the brothers. She's able to, within an extent of a mortal character without knowledge of demons hold her own a little bit she is a bit of a badass like i think so had they written it almost feels like they'd written her in a way where had she stayed on the show she could have grown into a proper character Mm -hmm. and it wouldn't have felt out of place you know i think this might have been our first hint at female hunters Ooh, Ooh, so that could have been fun i am very excited about that too now i know i'm i'm gonna make the best segue of my life Speaking of female characters who are only better than the ones we have right now, <laughs> we have a we have someone from our supernatural community, a friend of ours, Carol, who wanted to uh, lend her voice to our show. And it's really this voicemail this week is actually quite interesting because it feeds really well into our discussion uh, from last week. So here goes. Mm-hmm. Hi, Mary. Hi, Drew. So as per your request, this is my uh, very awkward little voicemail voice memo thingy to you um thank you so much for inviting me to do it um so 
given what you asked, I started to think back and try and like figure out the context of like when I started watching Supernatural, how I fell into it, whatever that may be. And I went back and I looked up uh, when it aired and Supernatural, the first episode aired uh, September 13th of 2005, which makes sense because I'm pretty sure that I started watching Supernatural because it either came on like before or after the OC or Everwood or Gilmore Girls or Dawson's Creek because Dawson's Creek was still on the air at that point, I think, maybe. I don't know, it was a weird season when they were in college or grown up. Anyways, uh, so <laughs> I fell into Supernatural because it used to be on the WB for your listeners that are not millennials. The WB is what the CW used to be. It was the Warner Brothers Network, and it was responsible for all that is teen dramedy things that we all used to watch obsessively, um, which is funny. Because I think the reason why I got into Supernatural was on a channel that was mainly comprised of shows about teen girl A falling in love with teen boy B and C and having to figure out who she loved more. And or the inverse of that, which is like teen boy falling in love with teen girl A and B and trying to figure her out that archetype. Supernatural was kind of like the only show that had very, I'll say this with a caveat, with the exception of the first season, very few like romantically driven storylines. At the essence, it was really just kind of like a grown up version of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Which is great because I was too afraid to watch Are You Afraid of the Dark when it was age appropriate. And I was like 16 and Supernatural was on. And I was like, oh, this is age appropriate for me now. Um... <laughs> So yeah, so I think the thing that I wanted to put into context was was this, because I think it'll be very interesting to talk about the first season, keeping this in mind. So Supernatural debuted on the WB, which, as I said at that point, had like Gilmore Girls and The O.C. Um, again, for you non-millennials, The O.C. is like the predecessor to Gossip Girl. Um, which you should totally go back and watch if you haven't already. Anyways, um, so it was on this channel that was really aimed at teenagers and aimed at, like, fulfilling that, like, fantasy of what our high school experiences we wish were like. Because I definitely wish a Ryan Atwood had shown up in my high school. That would have been nice. Anyways. Um... <laughs> So yeah, that was basically its drive. It's like its whole tour de force was those kind of kind of TV shows, and Supernatural came on, and the premise was two brothers that were trying to hunt down their dad, who happened to interact with the supernatural and were responsible for, you know, putting evil sons of bitches back where they belong. Uh, <laughs> So it was a little out of place. And what's interesting is I think there's like an interview somewhere that like I read or heard there, Kirky, who's the show's creator, who had said like, you know, he he couldn't really figure out where to pitch it. He had pitched it to sci-fi and stuff like that and couldn't really get it picked up. So it got picked up by the WB. And a lot of the writing in the first season where you're going to see these kind of like awkward romantic storylines that don't really seem to go anywhere was really Kripke just, like, trying to, like, keep WB happy. And what's really funny is, essentially, you'll notice the, like, 
attempt to push romantic storylines drops off at about like season two and it's because basically what happened was by the end of season one warner brothers uh sold or merged their channel into cw and have no idea who it's merged with and in that merging process kripke was shocked that they didn't get dropped so season one is like trying to jam in these like rom romantic teen storylines keep the wb happy season two's like don't change anything too much and maybe just hope they don't notice that they renewed you and then season three was like okay yeah we're cool screw it let's do what we want which i think will be really interesting for you guys to kind of like if i'm the first person pointed out to kind of like take a look at that and kind of you know really examine where the storylines come from, the ones that are important and the ones that aren't, because fundamentally at the center of it, and I will happily join you for a podcast or something to discuss this, because um, I'm not sure they do it well in the later seasons. Uh, fundamentally, Supernatural is about family and what you define as family and how you make family and the ways that they're problematic and the ways that they work in the ways that we feel pressure to be what our parents want of us, how we misinterpret what our parents want of us, living in older brother shadows, living in little brother shadows, and those dynamics. And I think that's what drew me in, was that fundamentally at its core, Supernatural is a story about families, both blood and maid, and all the problems that they incur. And there's something kind of nice about getting to watch an hour of TV that also definitely feeds into like my desperate desire to find out that some historical part of my family tree has witches in it and that I can start my own coven because um, I want to be Rowena. Uh, <laughs> but that's what it is. It's what draws, I think, a lot of us in and what makes us kind of obsessed with it, aside from the occult supernaturally part of it, is that it's about family and all the ways that it's problematic and all the ways that you navigate building and maintaining those relationships. So yeah, that was my, I said I was going to keep it after three minutes and this is seven minutes. I'm so sorry. Carol, thank you so much for sharing this. Honestly, it's, I mean, it's always a pleasure to hear from you. So to hear from you about Supernatural is just like double the fun. I just find it so fascinating to hear from people who actually started watching the show when it started airing because that's that was not my experience. So to hear how you felt and how this show was different is just such a contrasting experience to mine where I felt like, ugh, this show is again like the same type of formula of things that we've seen before because I started watching it so late, but possibly not realizing that this was actually a leader in its genre on its own. So thank you for reminding me of that. I would also like to thank you. And as a fellow rambler myself and long talker, I understand that when you're given a three minute time limit, sometimes you go over and we're okay with that. And we don't have to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know what? I, I I've said it before. I'm a huge fan of the monster of the week formula and i think that does stem from my childhood i really did enjoy are you afraid of the dark and i was also too young for it but i was an idiot and i watched it anyways and 
it may have affected me and the reason I can't go into most shopping malls if there's too many mannequins. Story for another day. But it is a really interesting point you bring up, uh, Carol, in regards to family. And I think the themes of family, both by blood and found families, are so important today. And for people who really maybe grew up in homes that weren't as whole as some people got to. I mean, whether you were a child of divorce or uh, in more extreme cases like adoption, I would love to hear how this show may have affected you in those cases, just because it is a show about a family that is not whole. And the quest at the beginning is to find their father. It's literally to make the family whole and to avenge their mother. It's so much about completing the family dynamic or avenging the family dynamic. But along the way, it does seem to be the kind of show where the family that they find might not be the family they expected to find. I might ask you a question here, because is it that the family is not whole or that the family was whole as it was, but due to a lot of reasons, the people who were a part of this family just weren't able to see that it was whole as it was? I think that is exactly... I, I think you, again, did that thing where I rambled and you defined it better in your question. But yes, it is the... And again, it's. I think it's a trope in some senses. It is the looking for something you don't have and then realizing you had it all along. Mm -hmm. This is two brothers seeking vengeance for their mother and uh, Jessica and seeking their missing father because family is number one and family needs to be whole and avenged. But it's more about them learning that family is what they make it and the family is what they are right now. So yes, they're looking to complete the family, but it's not to say that they are not a complete family on their own. They just haven't realized it. And hopefully as more characters join the main cast, we can see, we can expect, we can expound on that a little more later on just because your family is missing a part doesn't mean it's not a complete family. And I want that to be not just in the show, but in real life. I mean, we meet people today. I have friends who, you know, never really had a relationship with parents or siblings the way they could, but found their own family through their own ways. And they never look back going like, oh, I don't have a family. They go, I have a family I made now. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's also the power of hindsight, right? To realize what you have by mm -hmm. looking back of when when you didn't have it or when you didn't realize that you didn't you, that you had it you know depending on the situation and so i think that's just an important distinction to be made and definitely something that will come back in the show i do look forward to it. i really i'm going to look i'm looking forward to when we get to the point that we can have a lot more of those discussions about remember when blank yeah. and now look at it through <laughs> the lens of knowing what we know now and that's like i know you have that and are trying not to spoil me so when i get to join you in those moments and like you can finally go finally we can talk about this you idiot i'll be so excited <laughs> would you like to join me in a crossroads deal yes i believe you went first last time so i'll take it first this time perfect kind of mirroring on what you brought up last time in a smaller manner i feel like the younger brother of Haley, whose name i've Ben, maybe? I, yes, I don't ben. know. Really? Wow. <laughs> you got that one. Good job. <laughs> I have a younger brother named Ben. It's the only reason it's stuck, I think. <laughs> I feel like but, you should have remembered that. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like he did nothing. Like, I think he has one line at the dinner table when they come to investigate, and maybe, like, one line while they're out camping slash hunting. I don't think he really adds anything to the story except being there. Mm. I think my deal at the Crossroads would have been when Dean gets 
picked off by the Wendigo and captured along with Haley had they taken Ben instead, allowing Haley to, even if just for that episode, grow as a character with Sam by her side, who is not romantically interested in her in any way, and letting us see her a little bit on her own without Dean there as like a sounding board for everything she does. I love that. I really do. And it brings me to wonder what exactly, what is the role narratively of Ben in this episode? And it's something that I had never really wondered. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I think if I had to pick why Ben was there, like as I was thinking about this last night, I think the reason Ben is there is, again, to drive home the point of family. Mm. Because just, and it sounds stupid to say, but just being two people looking for a third makes it feel more like we're a family missing a member versus I'm one person missing one person. Mm. I think just having Ben drives home more the point of they are a complete family, even though there's no parents in the picture. It's the three of them. Mm. Whereas if it was just Haley, I don't think the point would drive home as much. The same way you have Dean and Sam looking for their father, not yeah. just one person seeking one person. It seems like a really weird distinction, but like it almost mirrors them better of their two people missing one person. Oh, goodness. Okay, yes, I absolutely see that. And, you know, it, at the beginning, it's interesting because it also, having Ben around also allows us to see Haley as a caretaker, like a, directly, mm -hmm. you know, because she feeds Ben, right? She's, she's serving food in one of the first scenes when, where we meet her. And so, yeah. okay. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. I had never thought about that before, so thank you. Hey, if it wasn't for both you having this conversation with me, and I will admit Carol's voicemail, I don't think I would have been so hard on the theme of family, and it wouldn't have hit me now. That That's was a literal true. realization now, live during the episode, thanks to this conversation. The show is doing what it's meant to do. <gasps> I'm learning! <laughs> yes, we are practicing dialogical hermeneutics! <laughs> Yay! And I'm learning a new word, apparently. Um... <laughs> So what is your deal at the Crossroads? I'm intrigued to know now. Well, so I would give up Roy in this episode because, so I've brought up already that I think Roy is an important plot device in order to show Dean, you know, as the, well, as you described him, you know, as the, the guy who always wants to be like one up on everybody else mm -hmm. uh, or the, the baddest ass around, not just the badass, the baddest one, you know? <laughs> yes. But Roy is also important because he allows Dean to make that to ask those questions about hunters, which I think now is is really meant to ask, you know, are you are you a hunter or a hunter? And so he's important, but he's really not that important. And I think that without that whole like pissing contest between Dean and Roy, we would have had much more time to develop Haley, perhaps, Ben, perhaps, or even learn more about Wendigos, which I now realize I've been pronouncing wrong this entire episode. I would just like oh, to know. Oh, if I may. Yeah? Uh, it, it is very, like, if you look online, Wendigo, Windigo, there's a lot of pronunciations and spelling variants of it. <laughs> okay. And I think, again, without having someone who could properly describe the pronunciation from an Algonquin point of view. That's true. I'm okay with all the pronunciation. Like, I think it's one of those things where I just picked up Wendigo at some point through something. I can't remember what or how. I think it's how they say it in the episode as well. No, I feel like in the episode too, I really was like upset with the way they pronounced it. Like, I really thought oh, they really? put the emphasis on the like beginning half too much. <laughs> but I think that's all just a matter of like, it's tomato, tomato. I don't think unless someone has an answer for us, if there's a proper pronunciation until then, I will never say one is right or wrong. I just like Wendigo. I find Windigo a little funny. 
<laughs> I think there's even a spelling where it's with two E's, so it's Weendigo, and I'm like, Ooh. that's really weird, but like, okay. hey, no judgments. Yeah, there you go. Just I mean, confusion. The, the reason why I mention it is because I English is actually my second language, and so I was known in high school for putting the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllables, so this is something <laughs> that might happen throughout the podcast, so feel free to correct my pronunciation if ever that happens. I may choose to do that, or I might just choose to remember how cute it is and let it happen, so sorry. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. Subscribe on Spotify or Apple Music for weekly content, including special episodes. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Carrying Wayward. And don't forget to send us a voicemail at carryingwayward at gmail.com. This week, we'd like to thank Carol Ferry for their voicemail. Until next week. Carry on our wayward friends. <laughs>